0: Well, we're in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, we've made our way as far as verse 18, and we're going to read up to verse 27 this morning. Let's take a look together. Let's read our text. Now it happened as they were praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, well, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, well, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and some, others, That you are one of the prophets that has risen from old. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said, and he said to all, if any would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and daily, excuse me, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. And when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels, but I tell you the truth, truly, that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. We've actually made it to the point of a climax within the account of Luke As Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus, he is now concluding the true identity and revealing that to his reader of the person of Jesus Christ. All the speculation and all of the wonder of who the true identity of Jesus uh, was and is has been uh, perplexing and confusing to the people watching and witnessing his ministry throughout the land. And now Luke is bringing to our attention through the confession of Peter that this is the Christ. This is it's the Greek word for one appointed by God. It is uh, synonymous with the Jewish word Messiah. This is the one in whom Jesus the jewish people have been waiting for with great anticipation and this morning i want to look at the first three verses of our text with you because i believe that jesus poses a question to them that each and every individual who ever lives on the face of this earth is going to have to wrestle with at one time or another within their own personal life and that is who do you say that i am each and every individual is going to have to conclude who they believe Jesus actually is. And we begin here in verse 18, as Jesus is praying, seeking the Father and with the disciples about him. The disciples had just returned from a trip throughout the region of Galilee, specifically around the city of Capernaum. They've gone out two by two. As Jesus had instructed them, they returned tired and weary from their journey, and yet they were met with a group of people that required their attention. And of course, this group of people is where the stage had been set for the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. It appears now that those people have departed. Matthew tells us that they have now made their way as far as Caesarea Philippi, which is at the mouth of the Jordan River. Uh, this is where the Jordan River begins. And so they've made their way, so there has been some time, and now Jesus is praying, and he appears to be with his disciples. Jesus, when he prayed, he often prayed by himself, but in the hearing of the disciples. And as they were talking and, and speaking with one another, Jesus prompts them with the question, who do people, the crowd specifically, say that I am? Obviously, he's asking the question based upon their interaction with the region of Galilee and the people of the that were fed during the feeding of the 5,000. Who do people, the crowds, say that I am? And they begin to list a, a number of possibilities that the crowd had concluded. The list is very similar, in fact, it's identical to the list that herod gave concerning the understanding of the identity of jesus who are you well you are john the baptist resurrected for we know that herod had john the baptist executed at this time and many believe that jesus was john the baptist resurrected but some believe that he was the fulfillment of malachi 4 5 that he was the one that Malachi had prophesied would come before the arrival of the Messiah, that is Elijah, the prophet. And then others believe that he was possibly just one of many of the Old Testament prophets who possibly had now risen again to come back in their time. In each case, though, when you come to the original time that Luke records this perplexity to us in Luke 9, 7 through um, 9, we find that Herod was perplexed by this, confused by this. He didn't know what to believe or who to believe concerning the identity of Jesus Christ. And I believe that Luke once again introduces the same language, the same list of people to not simply uh, give answers to Jesus concerning who he may be, but more specifically to show that the crowd was perplexed in who he was. They didn't know. They weren't sure. Seeing all of the same things that the disciples had seen, hearing all of the same things that Jesus' disciples had heard, there was still confusion and perplexity concerning his personal identity. Who is this person, Jesus? There's a confusion. And Jesus wanted to substantiate a very, very important point for you and I today by asking this question. That the social understanding or the cultural understanding of the person of Jesus is irrelevant in our particular for our particular perspective and our particular point of view society gets it wrong the word crowd there is a very interesting word in the greek it is a crowd of uncommitted people he's basically saying if i may who does the world say that i am He's not referring to the religious leaders. He's not referring to Herod. He's just saying the uncommitted world. Who does the uncommitted world say that I am? And they respond with this litmus of different individuals that he possibly could be, and therefore demonstrating the perplexity that the world is in concerning the person of Jesus Christ. If we are going to understand who Jesus is, we must go to the source that reveals who jesus is to us now we understand that when peter made the confession that jesus is the christ the messiah we know from matthew's account that jesus responds and says it's not flesh and blood that has drawn you to this conclusion but it's been revealed to you by my father above I do believe that supernatural revelation takes place for one to truly see and understand who Jesus is. But you and I and individuals who are seeking the true identity of Jesus Christ, we must not go to the world's opinions concerning who Jesus is. Jesus said, I am not going to be found in the opinions of the world, the opinions of people who are not committed. The revelation in which Jesus has given of himself to you and I is the word of God. It is there and there alone that we see and understand and learn of his true identity. It is there that Jesus now displays for us aptly who he is and what he is all about. But notice that the crowd's opinion is irrelevant For each and every person is going to have to decide for themselves who Jesus is. And this question is the most important question that you will ever be asked in this lifetime. What you are going to do with Jesus, I don't want to put too fine of a point on it, but your entire eternity rests upon it. Jesus knew that unless his disciples truly understood who he was and is, they would never follow him accordingly. They would never allow Jesus to occupy the the prominent position of authority in their life. If Jesus is exactly who he said he is, then what position, what role should he occupy within our life? Let us take, for example, that he is a king. And not the king of any just one locality, the king of kings, the lord of lords. Just that in and of itself shows me and demonstrates to me that the only proper place for Jesus to reside is in a place of prominence and authority within my life. Today, unfortunately, for many different reasons, we in America have marketed Jesus as a mere supplement to our everyday life that he is there to help us in our times of need, when we don't feel right, when things are going wrong. You know, we interact with him like he was a Flintstone vitamin. That's what my doctoral thesis is going to be. Jesus, our Flintstone vitamin. We take him off the shelf when we need him because we're not feeling the way we think we should. We take him as a supplement, but in actuality, We do not revolve around Jesus, but Jesus revolves around us. And yet the Bible is replete with contradictions to that statement. Jesus doesn't live for me, I live for Jesus. And this is very unpopular to consider. Because self-sacrifice is now going to have to be involved. Self-denial is going to have to be involved. It's no longer all about me, but more more appropriately, it would be as Jesus said, not my will be done, but your will be done. And this brings us to the point now, folks, where we need to ask, what role does Jesus play in my personal life? Who do you say that I am? And then once you realize the identity of Jesus, you therefore need to conform to what he desires for your life. And I'll demonstrate that that was a New Testament perspective after the ascension of Jesus Christ in the book of Acts. Today, when we talk about Jesus, you may may feel that, well, anyone who discusses Jesus must be referring to and uh, discussing the same Jesus that I believe in. That can't be farther from the truth. Today, we have so many different opinions of who Jesus is that are offered to us by secular scholarship. We have uh, uh, secular opinions that, uh, amongst the laity. We have uh, individuals from other faiths and religions trying to tell us who and what Jesus was and is, etc. There are thousands of different Jesuses out there. There's only one true Jesus that is capable of saving, and that's the one found in the Scriptures. And I think it's important for you and I to know that when he is asking the question to his disciples, who do you say that I am? That he was asking them to now identify who he truly is. And Peter identifies him rightly. You are the Son of God, it says in Matthew you are the christ of god the anointed one however though we find that their understanding of jesus was still limited at this point they believed in the social understanding of the messiah of that time the cultural understanding that the messiah was going to come as a descendant of david to once again restore israel to its zenith to bring the Israelites under, out from under the oppression of the Romans, that he was going to be their great savior and liberator uh, through um, uh, oh, what's the word? military uh, per, purposes. And so they were still waiting for him to set up his kingdom. And we see the arguments throughout the gospel. We even have, this is one of my favorite portions of scriptures, when the disciples call in the big guns upon Jesus to allow them to sit in places of prominence within his kingdom. They weren't getting their way, so they called in the big guns. They called in their mom. Mom, Jesus won't let us sit on his right hand and on his left. Will you talk to him for us, please? And she actually goes to him. Now, I don't know about you, but that has to be one of the greatest things in the Bible. Mom comes to their defense. You know, I can just see Jesus. You guys are the ones that are going to carry on the mission after I ascend back into heaven and you have to have your mommy come to me? Wow. But I love how real the Bible is. No, there was a depth to his to their. I mean, a lack of depth to their understanding that Jesus was still going to tell them as time went on. Remember, he said that if I were to tell you everything right now, you couldn't handle it. There's more to come. But today, if we look in our world, and if I were to go to the source of all information, Google, and I were to type in "Who is Jesus." can you imagine how many hits you would get? Well, it's over 2 billion. Not million, billion. So somewhere in there, you can imagine that there's a lot of falsehood. That being said, as Christians, I've discovered that in conversations with believers, many Christians have a very small understanding of who Jesus actually is. And therefore, I believe that because of their limited understanding of who Jesus is, they can comfortably keep him in a place of supplement rather than them in a place of submission to him because they don't fully, truly understand who he is. You know, the world will argue that he was simply a good teacher, a man who lived at one time. Some have written extensively that he was one of the first successful advocates that advocated for his people and so forth. Now, I think that's kind of ironic because he, w- he, he didn't do anything to free his people from the Roman oppression, did he? And yet they consider him a successful advocate such as Gandhi and so forth. And they simply limit him to that type of understanding. There are now many who believe that Jesus never existed. And they use the same arguments they do concerning William Shakespeare. There are many in academic communities now who do not believe that William Shakespeare was one individual, that his sonnets and poems and so forth were conglomerates of many different writers, and they will proceed in their understanding and teaching of his material in such a way. Now today, people believe that Jesus is simply a created figure based upon some kernels of uh, truth that happened during that time, but now were embellished and they were, you know, and they were uh, hyped and so forth to what we have currently today. So they dismiss him altogether. If you go to the world's religions, the Muslims simply believe that Jesus was a prophet in the lines of Muhammad, but uh, inferior to Muhammad. If you go to the Jehovah's Witnesses, they simply believe that Jesus was one of the angels. If you go to the Mormons, they will believe that Jesus is uh, the brother of Adam, and so forth. So who was Jesus? Well, I'm going to give you a brief synopsis this morning, if I may. And this synopsis comes from something that I have been compiling over a period of time concerning biblical theology, concerning the uh, prominent 12 positions of theology, from a perspective that I have and am growing within, I add to it and I subtract it from it as I go on, as I learn more. But from Genesis to Revelation, I'm going to make some very distinct bullet points concerning the identity of Jesus Christ, And if we are going to have a discussion about who Jesus Christ actually is from our perspective of biblical understanding, we must begin with this that Jesus Christ is God. This would make him superior to a prophet, an angel, a brother of Adam, a created being. Number one fact concerning the identity of Jesus Christ is that he is God how do you know that well we have verses throughout the Bible that tell us number one that he preexisted pre-existed with the father from the very beginning of time that he was not a created being that all things were created through him He is the second person number two of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All the attributes of God the Father are found in the person of Jesus Christ. When he lived here on this earth, he was sinless, the only perfect individual. He was sinless and therefore he was able on behalf of God to forgive sin which only God could do in that culture. And we have the Gospels replete with occasions where he forgave sin, demonstrating that he is God. And fifthly, he performed vast numbers of miracles, identifying him as the Messiah in conjunction with the prophecies of Isaiah. The prophecies in Isaiah clearly tell us that Jesus Christ is, is not only the fulfillment of all of those prophecies, but also the coming one, God himself, to mankind. Jesus became man through the birth, through the virgin conception of Mary, demonstrating that his father was not an earthly father, such as Joseph, but our heavenly father, who is the God of all creation. But in his birth, we see a human frailty to show that not only was he 100% God, but he was also 100% man. That's called the hyperstatic union of Christ. It's great if you're playing Scrabble, if you can use it for triple-letter score. I would suggest you could show off at parties using that word. The relationship between Jesus' deity and his humanity. And as a result... We see that in those human frailties that he was tired, thirsty, hungry, he wept, he was able to be tempted at times, etc. That he had human frailties. Coming in the perfect likeness of the Father, when the disciples asked him, show us the Father, show us God, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Demonstrating the compassion of God the Father that has always been there. Throughout the Old Testament, there are myriads of examples of God the Father mercifully and compassionately interacting with his people, begging for their repentance, and they refuse and reject his offer of forgiveness. Jesus fulfilled every aspect of the Father's will here on this earth. Not only was he sinless in the sense of not committing sins, but he was also sinless in the idea of not omitting sins, meaning that everything that he needed to observe, he observed perfectly. The fulfillment of the life of Jesus Christ happened at the cross. For Jesus throughout his life said and uh, stated clearly that the hour of his existence, the meaning and the purpose of his coming was the purpose of going to the cross for you and I. And he fulfilled that. And on the third day was raised from the ground, raised from the dead to demonstrate that he had perfectly fulfilled all that the father had required of him. We know that he therefore walked with his disciples for many days after his resurrection and 500 individuals saw him after his resurrection and then he ascended back into heaven asking his disciples to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the work in which he would have them to fulfill. So what is Jesus doing today? Well he has ascended to the right hand of the Father in authority demonstrating that he is exactly who he said he was how do you know that during the stoning of stephen in the book of acts we see that he stood up from the right hand of god demonstrating that he was the one in authority as stephen was being stoned he got up to welcome him into the eternal kingdom that stephen had always desired to see He is our eternal mediator between God the Father and us. Because of our fallen state, because you and I have sinned before God, we needed a mediator to bridge the gap that that sin had created. Jesus Christ became the only mediator between man and God. For Paul clearly tells us in Timothy, for there is one mediator, the mediator of Christ Jesus, who mediates between God and man. There is no other way to God the Father but through the person of Jesus Christ. Well, how do you know that? Well, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Well, that's awful narrow-minded. Well, sure it is. It's narrow-minded because only one person could ever claim that, and that is Christ himself, because he was God himself. He is mediating on our behalf. He is our propitiation before the Father. Many Christians don't realize that when the word propitiation is used in conjunction with the word advocate in the book of 1 John, what is happening is that, believe it or not, the Bible shows us that Satan is accusing us before the Father of our failures in and of our sin. Meaning that if he himself, that is Satan, had been cast out of heaven due to the fact of his pride, which we believe the Bible clearly teaches, the question therefore becomes, what right do we have as sinners to stand before a holy God and to be in his presence? And so Satan will accuse us, the great accuser of the brethren, and he will continuously be rattling our faults and failures before God the Father. Now, if we stood there alone, we would be subjected to the guilt of each and every one of those accusations, for undoubtedly those accusations are correct. However, though, In John's mind, he saw Jesus as our propitiation, as our advocate. So picture it this way, if you will. That as we stand before God, the Father, and Satan is just accusing us of everything that we have ever done, even after becoming a Christian. Because we still sin, don't we? Even though we hate it and we wish we didn't, we still are not perfected yet that'll happen when we see the lord and when we are with him for all eternity that perfection will be obtained as paul says we will be glorified but right now we're all works in progress aren't we some of us may be farther along than others some of us we're real works in progress god's uh, chipping away a little bit at a time So as we stand there before God the Father and Satan accuses us, if you are in Christ and Satan then has just blasted us before the Father, waiting in smugness, I I feel, uh, for the Father to render us guilty and cast us out of His presence, all of a sudden, as we hang our head in shame and guilt, before the Father, we feel this gentle hand upon our shoulder. And as we look, we see that it's nail scarred. And it's at that moment that Jesus steps up alongside of us. And then he proceeds to stand in front of us and says to the Father, they are one of mine. For I have paid for their sins past present and future. And God the Father seeing us through the perfection of the Son takes the proverbial gavel and strikes and says all is forgiven. That's what Jesus has done for us. He is our Savior. He is the only complete and personal savior there is but he's not done yet for he's coming back and when he comes back we believe in the physical return of jesus christ we will be given a glorified body to enjoy heaven to its fullest this body is here to enjoy this world and it's you know subjected to its limitations right Every birthday I am reminded of how much more I am subjected to the limitations of my body. Things ache now that I didn't even know I had. But one day I will stand in perfected glory before the Lord in a new body that He has created for me. 2 Corinthians 5, John 14, tell us that. To enjoy heaven to its fullest. And we will reign with Christ as he reigns physically over this earth, one day bringing it in to a understanding, or I should say, bringing it to now complete restoration in a new heaven and a new earth. This is who Jesus is. So to reduce him to a simple teacher or a person that didn't really exist, but it's just a culmination and a collaboration of different sayings by different people during that time from one persona let's say or to reduce him to the brother of adam or to an angel or to simply to be a prophet would not do him justice he is god who came to die on our behalf and demonstrated his perfection and his deity perfectly in the 33 years in which he lived on this earth. The disciples didn't understand all that we had just covered as we see beginning to the end, of the complete culmination of the ministry and the work of Jesus Christ in his creation. But by the time Paul wrote the book of Colossians, if I would have you turn there please, I want to show you and demonstrate to you that this was first century thinking. That the early church absolutely bought into everything that we have just said. And then they asked the question, with the understanding of who Jesus actually is, what role shall he play in my life? What is my relationship with him? We are all about relationship with the Lord. I am a Complete advocate uh, uh, about, I'm sorry, a complete um supporter of the idea of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. But what is my relationship? Is he simply my buddy that I can friend and unfriend on Facebook as I will? Is he simply a good angel on this shoulder? you know, telling me what I need to hear in contrast to what Satan wants me to hear on this side. I believe that we often reduce him to these things. But notice the first century church, Paul the Apostle, writing concerning Jesus and who he is, our relationship with him. Let us begin in verse 15 of chapter 1 of the book of Colossians. Notice with me here, as we read these words together, how Paul viewed him, and then the relationship that he believed was essential to have with him. Verse 15, for he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul is saying everything that we have just talked about that Jesus Christ is the perfect image of the invisible God, that is, God the Father, and by him all things that were created that were created visible and invisible thrones and dominions and rulers and all authority everything was created through him and notice the next portion for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together meaning that he is currently holding everything together until he decides to let it go and he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead. He was the first to raise and then not to die again. That in everything, he might have preeminence. And that's what I want you to notice. That in every aspect of life, Jesus Christ is meant to have preeminence. The ultimate position of authority, the place of prominence, the place of honor, preeminence before everything, before me. Jesus Christ must hold that place of preeminence. This is what the New Testament church thought of Jesus. Who are we to reduce Him in any way, shape, or form? If we are truly going to be followers of Jesus Christ, we must understand who he is because it's only when we fully understand who he is in our relationship with him that we will be willing to do what Jesus says next. That if you decide to follow me, then you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after me. And we're not going to do that unless we truly know who Jesus is. So the question I leave you with this morning is that who do you say that he is